I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I'm here today with Alexandra Silber, who's the author of memoir White Hot Grief Parade and After Anatevka, a novel inspired by Fiddler on the Roof. She is a Grammy-nominated actress and singer who has appeared on stage internationally and regionally from the West End of London to esteemed venues like Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, and on Broadway. Her most recent role on Broadway was at Seidel in Fiddler on the Roof. Originally from L.A., Alexandra grew up in Detroit, Michigan. She currently lives in New York. So welcome, Alexandra. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I was just saying, I've had this book for so long, and I've been so excited to talk to you, and I happen to really love this color. of The cover is Thank just you. my two favorite colors. So. I love it, too. I love it, too. It's so funny when you—we're talking about White Hot Grief Parade, and as an author, you kind of get presentations of cover options, and you never even think about how other people will, you know, sort of come to an image of your book in one sort of— image. And they were all so different, but this one jumped out at all of us. So yeah. we're really excited. It's really it. awesome. Thank you. So can you tell everybody what White Hot Grief Parade is about? Of course. So White Hot Grief Parade is a memoir about the six months around the death of my father when I was 18 years old. And I think beyond that plot point, I sort of tell it in a very up-to-the-moment blogger voice. I break all the rules, I think, of, of writing memoir. There's a maze. There's a word search. There's, you know, all kinds of—there's things that are written as plays as well as more traditional prose. And I think that's the parade, right? It's that when you're in the middle of a grief storm, it feels like one thing after another is hitting you. And I wanted the— style of the book and the format of the book to reflect that bombastic experience. And it really focuses on my relationship to my father, obviously, my relationship to my extended family. And I think the real stars of the book are my remarkable 18-year-old friends and my mother. And this sort of point that at the sort of crossroads of childhood and adulthood, what does one do when they're hit with this thing that every culture fears the most? It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what animal you are, actually. Every time period, every era, every socioeconomic class, every language spoken fears losing someone they love. And yet it's this thing that we don't talk about very often. 
And we don't talk about it very well when we do talk about it. And on top of all of that, there aren't a lot of resources for people in between childhood and adulthood. And I wanted to sort of make a point that young adults are remarkable. And the ones that were in my life are still in my life. And what is the nature, the big question of the book, I hope, I don't necessarily address it directly, but I hope it emerges that, what does it mean to stand back up? And we hear so many books about how bad things are, you know, chapters and chapters and chapters of describing the bad. And then you sort of get this fast forward moment where it's like, 10 years later, here I am and I'm fine. But what happens in that fast forward? What is it like to stand up? And I think this book hopefully is an homage to that because it's very universal. And also, who are you when you stand back up? Because you're not the same person. You're not the same. Like, what do you look like? What does it mean to be upright anyway? Like the whole, everything. All of it, yeah, totally. So it was an obviously extremely cathartic experience. And so much of it I started and realized I couldn't finish because books like this can't be written until you're fully processed emotionally. And so I would start to write something and get to a place and go, okay, I just, I might need to table that for, for a couple of months or years. And, but it was an extraordinarily rewarding experience and feeling connected again to all of the people that were there to help me and my mom. Did you start it at the time? Did you write any, did you record any of it? Or is it all from memory? Not to write, but even like just to remember. Oh, sure. I don't think so. The only things that are direct from that time are a series of letters that I received from my then boyfriend, Kent. And I did journal at the time, but it's funny. I look, I, and I referred back to it, but it's just gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I think if in a way, what White Hot Grief Parade is, is uh translation, I put in huge quotes, translation of that gobbledygook of my journals and my thoughts and my feelings. It's like, okay, now that we've sifted through all of this, this is what that was actually about. So I'm interested, you're, so you're an actress. I am, yeah. You've taken this show on the road. You've like, you're amazing. Grammy nominated, <laughs> international star. I mean, you've been everywhere. It's insane. I don't even know how you found the time to do this. You look like you're 12. Oh, anyway, thank you. <laughs> but you wrote... After Anatevka, mm-hmm. after you'd been in Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And bless your heart, you just thought about what might have happened after, and you went ahead and wrote that book. I did. It, that, that book took nine years to write, top really? to tail. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting, and I, I think one of the many things that's like, okay, so in, about the, the nature of your podcast, right? I think so often in our lives we're, we're told what we are is defined by what we do, and I have this really, I suppose, conventionally successful night job, I, I joke, you know, being a working actor. And sometimes a working actor, really at the height of what it means to be an actor in the theater, I've worked in the West End and on Broadway, which are, you know, where you aim for an English-speaking theater. And I'm honored by that. But I, I think I also knew that I had other identities that weren't just connected to my job. And I think everyone feels that way. You know, you're not just a mother. You're not just a finance person. You're not just a, you know, we all have hobbies and loves. But what if we started to bring those things to the forefront and not necessarily have them replace the old identity, but stand side by side with them? For me, it was about creativity 
And I realized that right around the same time I was playing Hoddle, I've done two productions of Fiddler on the Roof. It's sort of crazy and bizarre and proof that there are no accidents. The first time I was, it was about five years after my dad passed away. I was 23 years old and starred in a regional production of Fiddler in Sheffield, England, a production we didn't know would transfer to the West End and eventually did. And it took up top to tail about two years of my life, and it was incredibly powerful. I think for the reason that these books, well, I should say, these books are connected. They're completely different genres. They're completely different voices, but they're first cousins because they're tied to the same experiences. And I'll say that when my father passed away, I felt a responsibility to table my grief and become myself, fulfill the potential that both of my parents and everyone around me, my teachers, my peers, had charged me to become. I had all this potential, I had all this training, I had all this natural talent. And what if in the face of this tragic event at such an awkward time in a person's development, what if that leveled me? I think that's a question a lot of people are faced with. Will this level me? Will I stand back up at all? And the way I responded to the event was, and this happens right after the events of White Hot Grief Parade, I decided to have a huge adventure. I thought, well, I have two choices. I could curl up and die too, which of course isn't literal. It's collapse on myself, collapse on my dreams. Or in the face of this adversity, I could really live. And I auditioned for a school in Glasgow, Scotland, and I moved to Scotland (laughs) and had a huge experience that was crucial to my development. But I don't think I faced the feelings and the real experience of grief because I felt this responsibility. And there I was five years later rehearsing Huddle, who has this probably one of the most beautiful and perfect scenes in musical theater where she stands on the train platform and says to her father alone that she's going to go pursue her heart and soul despite all of the adversities presented to her and sings that beautiful song, Far From the Home I Love. And then her final words to him were words I didn't get in my life. Papa, God alone knows when we shall see each other again. And his response to her is, then we will leave it in his hands. And I, I didn't get to say goodbye to my dad, but I did through Huddle. And it's one of the beauties of the theater is you get to live these multiple lifetimes, you know? So I think I realized that that was this five-year mark. And Can we pause for yeah. one second? You wouldn't sing any of that, would you? Would you ever do that? No, but I can send you a clip of me Would singing. you? Yeah, okay. we have the, I have the recording for okay. sure. How do you go on? Because I'm like in tears. Uh-huh. I mean, that's emotional. How do, you, how do you go and perform that over and over and over again when it's so, when it hits such a personal nerve? Sure. How do you like draw the line between, oh, this is what I'm doing is my acting job versus... You know, it's really interesting. That's a question I get a lot. And I'm oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Questions no. you get a lot. No, it's a question I get a lot in sort of a different form, right? Which is, it's not always under that lens. I think it's a very fascinating question to ask, how do you do a show eight times a week for years on end? There's no other job in the world that's really like it, you know? Even if you work in a factory and you literally do the same thing every day... You talk to different people, 
you wear different clothes. You know, it's theater acting is a lot like Bikram yoga Mm. in the sense that you're doing the exact same series of movements. You're wearing the same outfit. You're saying the same lines. You're telling the same story. But the difference in Bikram yoga is the same difference in the theater, which is you are different every day. You wake up and you're feeling vulnerable and therefore so is Huddle. You wake up and feel strong and have a day where you feel extraordinary resilience and hope and therefore so does Huddle. You might feel physically like you're aching and suffering and therefore so does Huddle. And that's the distinction is you might be saying and doing the same identical things in the same outfits, but we change moment to moment, and that name might even be different from the evening performance, depending on wow. how you feel or what happened in between. And I think that's a circuitous answer to that question, is there were just days when it was work. Mm-hmm. There were days when I was just so happy to sing. There were days when I felt really connected to Judaism, but not necessarily to grief, to life purpose and being charged to do something and pursue something greater than yourself and not necessarily a goodbye to my dad. And then there were days when it was exquisite pain. It was touching the nerve directly and, and ex, you know, an exposure so white hot. Wow. And I felt like in that way, playing huddle cradled me and gave me a place to feel that grief and utilize those feelings and and ultimately give me the goodbye I was robbed of. Therefore, she meant so much to me. And I suppose I did wonder what happened to her in a very personal way. I did a lot of research during the run about what happened to women in her position. Mm-hmm. What happened to people that boarded this train to meet people that they were married to or associated with in some way or related to. But there was, what I kept discovering over and over over again was this loophole of women that were affianced but not married. Mm -hmm. They fell into this no man's land and the government processing didn't know what to do with them and they got trapped. And often they would be utilized because Siberia had so few women in it. They would be sent to sort of increase the population. Oh, no. It was really hard life. And so it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful scene. But what happened next? And I had to know and saw it through and saw it through so thoroughly. I went to Siberia to no. find out. Yeah, I went to Siberia for a huge research trip. And it was one of the most profound examples of you cannot know until you experience something the colors, the smells, the people, the culture, the the change in how a language alters being in the world, what beauty means in a, one place versus in another. I mean, it it was mind blowing, and so and I think also sometimes when you're on a spiritual journey, you have to match it with a geographic one. You have to match it with a literal journey. And as you said earlier about when you stand up, you're not the same. When you return to the point of origin, you're not the same. And that's the oldest story in the world. That's Odysseus and Dorothy and Bilbo Baggins. You know, it's there and back again. So it was a really powerful experience. 
but yeah, I I I started writing during that first fiddler because I realized also while I was a performer, of course, technically performance was what was what was on my tax returns, if you will, that I wasn't as connected to performing as I was to creativity. Mm-hmm. And there's just a moment in a long run when creativity starts to ebb and you can't look to the night job or the theatrical experience to fulfill your creative needs anymore. You have to fulfill them yourself. And I didn't really know how to do that, but I'd always been a big reader. So we definitely have that in common. (laughs) For those of you listening, I'm sitting in the middle of like the most expansive, beautiful library and my (laughs) mouth is watering. So yeah, that had this really bibliophilic other love story going on inside my theatrical career. And oh, I love that bibliof. Say it again. Bibliophilic. Oh, bibliophilic <laughs> love story. You know, it was just a real love affair with books. And I don't remember who said it. Maybe you can look it up. You know, a good book is a good friend, mm-hmm. you know, and finishing a book is like losing a friend. You mm-hmm. know? So I started writing a blog when I was in London and I had this unbelievable feeling of oh my goodness, like the 200 words that I put together today in this order didn't exist in this order before I put them in the world. I had made something and it ticked the box. It filled me up, it fueled me. And then I was able to go to work at night. And if you will, I required less from work. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went to it with a purer heart. And I kept writing and writing. And eventually a literary agent found my blog and contacted me about, expanding essay and blog writing into critical essay writing into something novel length. And after Anatevka was sort of born of these questions, I'd never considered putting it into a narrative structure. But once the idea was in my head, it was pretty hard to stop the horses from running away. (laughs) And I just wrote it in between scenes, backstage, like... If I wasn't in a scene, I'd open up my computer and I'd set a timer so I didn't lose track of time, you know. If I, if, you know, sometimes you're so in it that you just fall into that world. So I would set an alarm to make sure that even if I wasn't listening to the loudspeaker, I would still make my entrances, you know. I did a play at the Kennedy Center and then on Broadway called Masterclass. And my character, Sophie, was only in the first act. So that was a huge joy because I would finish work and then I'd have to stay for curtain call, but I had this big like half hour chunk where I could write exclusively in act two of that play. So yeah, I think both of my books were born in dressing rooms and on airplanes and were my loyal companions alongside my theatrical life. And interestingly, when I was doing Masterclass, it's funny that that just came up, Masterclass was the 10 year anniversary of my father passing away. And White Hot Grief Parade was born of a blog post that I wrote titled, very simply, 10 Years, where I think I decided to take the veil of author voice, blogger voice. I know that, you know, voice is a big thing in writing, and you have to feel an affinity with the narrator, and the quality of the narrator changes book to book, and of course, like, style, etc. But I think my chatty and conversational tone. I wanted it, of course, my blog to feel like a friend, having a conversation with an informed friend about things that you cared about. But I don't think I ever 
allowed the blog until 10 years, this post, to reveal what I would describe as the distinction of intimacy. I had never taken that last boundary down and said, let's talk about what this was really like. I would do what in psychology is called book reporting. I would say, my dad died. I moved to Scotland. As I say in my book, here we are at this cocktail party. Um, (laughs) I would talk about and around the facts of the loss, but I wouldn't sit with you or anyone and experience the emotions surrounding the loss in real time, which I think is the distinction of vulnerability. And the revelation of vulnerability is, I think, what defines intimacy. So I had never done that. And I just decided to go for, you know, for one night only, for one post only, let's really talk about grief. And the response to the post was watershed insane. I mean, the responses, the strangers, the shares, the the reach, the desperation of other people to discuss this inner ache that and this universal fear that we will all experience at some point or another in different forms, in unimaginable ways, but we'll all meet in this land of grief. And some people choose to totally disguise themselves while they're there, and some people can't. And I think it was really surprising to me, again, this discovery of what I've already said of, wow, I guess we don't talk about grief very often, and when we do, we talk about it very poorly. And my agent said, okay, stop the presses on After Anatevka. You have to write something more expansive about this. And it clearly shows that you're ready to start that process. And while After Natevka took me many, many years to write, White Hot Grief Parade galloped out of me in weeks. The first draft was done in about nine or 10 weeks and it built, it grew, it evolved, but the structure was almost intact in its, in, you know, in its print form now a story that was demanding to be heard, demanding to be expressed, and like wasn't going to take no for an answer, but was waiting for the moment that I was prepared to write it. And they both sat on my computer as manuscripts, essentially. And I was, I was pleased with that. I was pleased to sort of say, I wrote some books. I don't know that anything will happen to them, but how exciting. You know, I ran the marathon. I don't need to tell everybody about it, but I did it whatever that may be for for you as an individual. And two years later, really by coincidence slash divine intervention, I was cast in the 50th anniversary production of Fiddler on Broadway. I had moved back to the States, and this time I was cast as Seidel. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, um, was it so hard to not play Hovel, you know? But it was seven or eight years later, and I had, first of all, I don't think I could possibly have told Huddle's story more thoroughly. I mean, I went to actual Siberia, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, you can check that off. The, you can check right. that box. I had told her story, and I think also Huddle is a character that is becoming herself, mm-hmm. discovering who she is, and the nature of what matters to her, and the order in which it matters. And when I played her, so was I. I was in the same place. And by the time I was playing Seidel, I was a woman, not a girl. I knew what mattered to me. I knew what my values were. I was thinking about partnership and children and my relationship to 
the divine and to society at large, which I think made me ideally suited to serve Zeidel's story. And just as like a little footnote, I was also given another iconic father-daughter moment that I, I know I will always ache for in life, which is being walked down the aisle by your father at your wedding. And I, I remember going to a wedding a few years before Fiddler on Broadway. And when my very good friend was walked down the aisle by her dad, I had this unbelievable ancient grief explosion with this knowledge that like, no matter what I do or achieve, how much money I ever make, how successful I ever become, that that's not a purchasable moment. Mm -hmm. And that that was something I would never have. And through Seidel and through Fiddler, I, I, I did get that. Oh, so it was really, it's been, a, it's been a really important gift to me. And I noticed so many, so many people. And so I was really lucky that if there was a moment to sell after Natevka specifically, that was like a cherry, 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 cherry on the slot machine, mm-hmm. this was it. <laughs> wow. And I was so blessed that Pegasus actually bought both manuscripts at the same time. And, and here I am, a, an identity shifting, but also identity expanding moment for me as an artist and it's amazing it's a it's such an honor and where do you see like what's coming next every a little of everything a li- oh of course a little of everything so I continue to take so after Anatevka actually turned into through the genius of the minds at Symphony Space a couple years ago just before the book came out Symphony Space contacted me and said, we'd love you to identify some chapters in your book, and we want to give those chapters to Broadway composer-lyricist teams to have them write original music based on After Natevka. And then we performed it in what felt like a this is your life, but this is your characters come to life kind of a moment where I would read the prose of my book, and instead of the moment dramatically ending in prose, it would end in this original song sung by my Broadway friends. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. And we didn't want it to be over. It was such a successful, wonderful evening. So my musical director, collaborator, one of my dearest friends, Ben Moss, and I sort of fashioned a version of that concert that included a few songs from Fiddler and five of the original songs from the Symphony Space Evening. And we sort of took it on the road as a duo. And we've been touring with it literally ever since. The last time we did it was last week, not even eight days ago, which is so rewarding because it's taken me to so many Jewish communities. I've gotten to meet incredible crossover audiences, if you will, people, some people that know me as an author, some people that know me as an actor. And one of the things that's so rewarding about those concerts is it's a celebration and an enacting of me doing all of the things I do mm-hmm. in one evening. So I dramatically read and embody these characters that I love so much. I read my original text, and then I use my singing voice to bring them to life in a different way. And it's sort of one of those unimaginable hybrid things you could never have conceived of being a part of your life. I have to get to one of these. Oh, I hope you do. It, it's a real joy. Florida or did I make that up? Yeah, yeah, I was okay. in Florida. We did a whole tour of Southwest Florida, which was a joy. And so 
definitely more of that. And I'm working on two new books, which is really exciting. Wow. Actually, kind of a companion to each of these. Definitely the next installment of what happens to this family that we know and love from the Shalom Aleichem stories and Fiddler on the Roof. And a lot of the continuations of the original characters that I've brought in to the book as well. And then I'm also writing a a really interesting collection of critical essays um, about how to love the theater and why to love the theater. So hopefully we'll be seeing those in the future. Yeah. And then I do have some theatrical projects. I don't know when you're releasing this, but I think I can say I am, I don't know that I've ever been so excited to start working on anything, but I'm going back to London in about 10 days <laughs> to start rehearsing the Broadway production in London, England of Paula Vogel's Indecent, which is a beautiful Jewish play about a beautiful Jewish play. We'll be running at the Chocolate Factory till the beginning of May. So I'm so blessed to have a little bit of everything in my life. That is amazing. Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. No, I mean it. I feel like I've like gone on this journey with you oh, to reading your book. And thank you. Like you end up just so rooting for you and before I even met you in person. Thank you. Because you're rooting for you in the book and now to see all this come to life. Thank you. And it's, the way you help other young girls, like the scene you tell when you were helped as you're exiting a theater and how you helped. I mean, like all this full circle I, stuff. I think we're <laughs> charged. Amazing. Thank you. I, I hope, I think the greatest gift I've been given in my life is this charge to continuously think, express gratitude to and for the people that have helped me and people that even resemble the people that have helped me mm-hmm. and hopefully give back to people that, if you will, resemble me mm-hmm. and show them grace and show them that even though they think it might never, ever, ever get better, that it it can and live that. I hope that even that is enough, but I try to try to really meaningfully contribute as much as I can. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Oh, sure. A couple things. One, and I actually think your podcast speaks to this directly, right? Time comes to those who make it, not those who try to find it. Ooh. And I think that is absolutely how I've gotten so many things done, if you will. I've been disciplined and... Discipline, though, doesn't come from rigor. The best kind of discipline comes from really knowing what your values are and making a decision to do something versus simply wanting to. And those are really big distinctions. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I often think of if you've made the decision to eat healthy and lose weight, it's a very different thing than simply wanting to. You make plans, you commit, you explore your soul about why. And I encourage everyone to do that work. And then additionally, once you've made the decision and you make the time, just sit down, just sit down and do it. I equate the just sitting down, speaking of which, the just sit down is an unoriginal phrase. It's actually, I've already mentioned him, Ben Moss's phrase, my musical collaborator. He's been engaging in a really interesting creative action where he's sitting down at his piano every day and writing original music, no matter how silly or where the inspiration comes from, and then posting the results online really for accountability, not for exposure. And he said, as long as I sat down at the piano, something always came. And the metaphor that I extended that to is 
You know, if you take the trouble to put on your gym clothes and your shoes and go to the gym, if you walk into the gym, you'll probably work out. If you go to church or the synagogue or the mosque or any place of worship, you'll prob- once you walk in, you'll probably sit down and pray. And I think that by going to the place of creativity, the piano for Ben, the canvas for artists, the computer for me, you're basically saying, I've entered this holy space. I'm ready to engage with life in that way. And may the muses move through me. (laughs) But it can't happen if you don't do it. And I think all of that together is to say, just make things. And don't worry about what they become. They are things that are wrapping on the window of your mind and heart and soul that want to be in the world and have asked you to be their birth canal. Don't deny them. Wow. That was beautiful and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank, well, you thank you for, you for all me. of that, Alexander. That was amazing. And wow, a lot of like, I have to go play this back and write out some of those quotes and put them on this bulletin board. Because <laughs> thank you. That was, that was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.